A reading from the prophet Isaiah. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are, who are of a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For water shall break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals shall become a swamp. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the holy way. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. No traveler, not even fools, shall go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord. Once, when Jesus was praying alone with only the disciples near him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist, but others, Elijah, and still others, that one of the ancient prophets had arisen. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Messiah of God. He sternly ordered and commanded them not to tell anyone, saying, the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Then he said to them, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose or forfeit themselves? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words, of them the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Wow, well, after Mindy, Mindy's sermon, I don't know if there's anything left for me to say, but let's, let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, we want to be your followers. But even as we acknowledge that, we admit that we don't always know what that means. And even when we do, uh, we struggle to count the cost of discipleship as worth it. Because we're weak, because we grow weary, and because we fail to apprehend the glory and the beauty and the joy of the life of love to which you call us. So awaken us now, we pray, and reveal yourself to us. Renew us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. So this Lent, uh, we've been exploring the theme of justice and the kingdom of God as we've been considering select episodes from the Gospel of Luke in which we see Jesus uh, develop this very theme in his own words and through his own deeds. And so from uh, Jesus' inaugural sermon in Luke chapter 4 to his miraculous healings, to his embrace of sinners, to his bold willingness to confront and even contradict the empowered leaders of the day, even his willingness to transgress religious, social, and political norms in order to assert God's life-giving reign in the midst of an unjust world. In all of these things, we've seen Jesus proclaim and perform the good news that in Christ, God is making right all that has gone wrong as he establishes his kingdom of justice and peace on the earth. Which is to say that in Christ, God is not only going about the business of restoring humanity to right relationship with himself, certainly God is doing that, but also that God is restoring humanity and all of creation to right relationship with both God and one another, and thereby to the wholeness and the flourishing for which God created them, created us in the first place. And this morning, as we continue our series, we turn our attention uh, to how God's mission of restorative justice actually shapes our life of discipleship as those whom Jesus summons to follow him. And now there's so much to consider here. There's so much that we might say about the intersection of these two massive and important topics, justice and discipleship. And it's really been great this weekend to have Kristen uh, Johnson here with us to lead our church in thinking more deeply and more biblically and indeed more Christianly about these very topics. And for those who came to the conference yesterday, you know, we had the opportunity to reflect at much greater length than we have time for today about just how inseparable these two things are justice and discipleship, and what it might look like for us in our lives when God's vision and even God's promise of a world put right begin to stoke our imagination and begin to steer our prayers and even begin to redirect our lives in the way of seeking God's kingdom. There's so many helpful insights and takeaways from yesterday's conference, and one that stands out and that resonates especially strongly with uh, what Jesus says in our text today is just this basic idea that what God calls us to do in the particulars of our lives is a function of whom God has made us to be in Christ. All of which is a reflection back to God and a reflection outward to God's world of God's own character, right? A God who is holy and who is faithful and merciful, just, abounding and extravagant in steadfast love. 
This is the God who makes himself known to us in Jesus, and this is the God who has created us to image him in his world, and beyond that, this is the God who in Christ and by the work of the Spirit has redeemed us and is actively working to renew us so that we would grow up to be more like him, to delight more in him, and to become increasingly effective conduits of his life and blessing in the lives of others around us. He's the God who has made us saints. Now, I know saint is a funny word, and probably many of us associate it with people like Mother Teresa or lots of really old, dead, super holy people, or, okay, Philadelphia, let's face it, Nick Foles, Saint Nick. Am I right? Still relevant? In the Bible, the word saint, it refers to someone who's in Christ, someone who's received the Spirit and has been set apart, who, who belongs to God, who's God's beloved child and set apart to serve God in the world. And so you, you who are in Christ, you are a saint. That's your identity. And as Kristen pointed out to us yesterday at the conference, and as she and her co-author Bethany Huang discuss in their book, The Justice Calling, when God calls us to follow Jesus in this life of justice-seeking discipleship, God isn't calling us to live as heroes, but as saints. And that's a really helpful and quite liberating distinction. Because I don't know about you, but as I encounter injustice in the world, it's overwhelming. You feel that? Whether it's the grand scale systemic injustice that casts its shadow so far and wide that we, we can't ever quite seem to get out from under it. Racism, human trafficking, the gun violence epidemic in our country, global hunger, what have you or whether it's the local, more personal manifestations of injustice that we see and hear and feel ourselves, the particular expressions of injustice that are attached to the faces and the names that we know, sometimes our own or sometimes our neighbors, sometimes our children's. It's overwhelming. And it's so obviously not the way life is supposed to be. And so I wrestle with the question, and maybe you do too, like what is my role? in all of this? Am I doing enough? Okay, scratch that. I know I'm not doing enough, but what should I do? What can I do? Will anything that I do make any difference at all? And if I can't see any results from what I'm doing, is there any point in doing anything? The paralysis. Maybe you've felt it. I know I have. The paralysis that stems from those questions is that of a wannabe, oughtabe hero living in the skin of a regular limited person who just happens to be staring into the face of a problem that is way too big for you to solve, right? But here's the thing, it's not yours to solve. It's not mine to solve, which isn't to say that we shouldn't care about it, of course not, nor is it to say that we shouldn't do anything about it or that we even shouldn't give our lives to the effort of striving against it, but rather it is to say that what you are called to do is a function of who you are. And what God is calling you to do is a function of whom God has made you to be in Christ. And guess what? You are not the savior of the world, and neither am I. You're not the hero. Jesus is. He's the Savior, not you. He's the hero, not you and not me. But 
you belong to him. And he's called you to follow him. And he's called you to be a member of his body on his earth. And so what I want us to think about this morning is that what God is calling us to do is related to who Jesus is, and it's related to Jesus' own calling, but it's not the same, right? He's the hero, we're the saints, and those two things are deeply connected yet profoundly different callings. And our text this morning helps us understand something of the dynamic that is to drive our life of justice-seeking discipleship to which God calls us. Not a hero impulse that is fundamentally self-aggrandizing and self-centered at its core when we try to do that, but a saint posture that is self-denying and self-sacrificial at its core as we rest and entrust our lives to Christ. And the way Jesus unpacks this for us in this text is that he explains to his disciples really for the first time how his own unique identity as Messiah connects to his own unique calling to suffer, to be rejected by these particular leaders, to die, and then three days later, on the third day, to rise again. And then he reveals to his disciples about how God is calling all of them, and actually all of us, right? Any who would come after Jesus. How God is calling all of us to follow in Jesus' footsteps in the way of the cross, the path of discipleship. And what I want us to consider together this morning is how our own identity and calling as disciples, while different from Jesus' own unique identity and calling as Messiah, is also inextricably connected to it and to him, And that while the responsibility for saving the world from injustice falls uniquely and squarely on Jesus' shoulders, the way of life that Jesus lived by which he became the hero and the savior is actually the same shape of 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 the way of life by which we are to live as saints and participants with Jesus in his mission of extending God's justice on the earth. And that way of life, this path of justice-seeking discipleship, Jesus tells us, is this self-denying, self-sacrificing way of the cross. So just look at our text briefly. It begins with Jesus quizzing his disciples about his identity, right? And then affirming Peter's answer. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah of God. Jesus asks the disciples, you know, who do do other people say that I am? Who are the crowds saying that I am? And they report back to him that some are saying that he's, that he's John the Baptist reincarnated, right? Or that he's Elijah returned from heaven, which he isn't, either of those things. Others are saying that he's a great prophet, which he is and more. But Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? What do you think? You've been with me. And Peter rightly identifies Jesus as this long-awaited promised Messiah to which Jesus gives a really strange answer. Don't tell. Don't tell anyone. Why? Because the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite self-given nickname, the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected by the religious leaders and then die and rise again on the third day. That's why. That's why you don't tell. And if the disciples go around spreading the word that Jesus is God's Messiah, then A, his whole mission 
of dying and rising might be compromised, right? Because who knows what kind of political uprising is going to follow if word starts leaking out that the Messiah is here. And then B, no one at this point in time has any concept of a Messiah who suffers and dies. So the time for proclaiming Jesus as Messiah is not yet. Not until after he dies and rises and sends the Spirit. So Jesus is basically saying to his disciples, look, don't jump the gun, okay? Don't jump the gun. You might ruin it. Just be patient. Ride with me. Just ride along with me. And by the way, this whole thing is going to go in a really different direction than what you think. He turns the discussion at that point toward them. And not just them, but all of us, right? He says, if any want to become my followers... Let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And this is a really grim image, right? It's, um, and the power may be lost on us somewhat just because for us, the cross is a religious icon. It's a religious symbol. We see them everywhere. They're all over. We're kind of numb to it. Uh, but, you know, to Jesus, to Jesus here is the cross wasn't a religious symbol at all. It's a Roman execution device, right? And so some people will say, you know, it's like saying, take up your electric chair and follow me, right? Which is that gets it part of it because it is a death device, but there's so much more to the cross than that as well. It's added to the deathly gruesome part uh, is this like far more horrific experience of death. Crucifixion is like the worst, but it's also this incredibly shameful end to your life. Under Jewish law, it means you're cursed. You're outside of the people of God. And under Roman law, those who were sentenced to to die, they had to forfeit their estate, and they were denied burial. So they were dishonored forever and ever and ever, and their descendants were disinherited. It's terrible. And this is Jesus' recruiting speech. He gives it four times. He repeats the same basic thing like three more times on his journey to Jerusalem, this call to deny yourself, bear your cross, follow me. Who wants in? I don't know about you, but in an era when like a bunch of the top college basketball programs are currently under investigation for recruiting violations as they're like paying players and bending rules to try to sweeten the deal to get the best people to join the team, that's how you recruit. Jesus' tactics seem absolutely absurd. But I think we even miss something more about how absurd they really are because we instinctively read this through our individualistic grid because we are 21st century Americans and that's what we do. But the people to whom Jesus is speaking, they live in a really different kind of society. One that runs on honor and shame and kinship networks that are everything. Okay? And if you lived in Jesus' day, your network of family and friends was your standing in the community, and your standing in the community was your identity. And the way you achieved status and security in the world was to work your way into these relationships of reciprocity, of mutual obligation, in which people owed you stuff, owed you honor because you gave them honor. Sort of an I scratch your back, you scratch mine kind of dynamic, but with this complicated power differential that was sort of like doing a deal with the mob. This is the way they lived life, this status, honor, exchange, and this network that's all situated in this really complicated web and community. And so when Jesus calls them to deny themselves and to take up their cross and to follow him, 
he was calling them, essentially, he's, what he would be calling them to do is to refuse to play the game that everyone else was playing, to refuse to participate in this honor-seeking way of constructing an identity for yourself and for your family, and instead to receive an entirely new identity from him, an entirely new place of belonging in the community of God's people who are playing a very different game. A very different game. Not the self-serving, self-promoting, honor-trading game of the world, but the self-sacrificing, other-promoting game of the kingdom of God. In other words, what Jesus is holding out for his disciples is this vision. What God is calling you to do is a function of whom God has made you to be in Christ, and he's made you saints. He's made you his beloved children. And so your truest identity is not one that you achieve for yourself, but it's one that you receive as a gift from the hand of God, which is completely counterintuitive to his hearers as it is to us. And the way of life, Jesus says, that fits God's beloved children is going to be shaped by the way of life pioneered for us by God's only begotten beloved son, Jesus. It's the way of the cross unto glory. Jesus is our hero. We ride with him. And Jesus explains to his disciples just kind of how this plays out. And he uses economic language, right, of like profits and losses. And he uses honor-shame language of status to explain to them just what kind of thing they're doing here. What kind of profit really matters? What kind of status really lasts? Is it that of a world that is passing away or is it that which is attached to the everlasting glory of the kingdom of justice and peace which God has promised and is actually bringing to bear upon the earth in Christ? And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, look, those who would follow me into that world deny themselves, take up their cross and follow. What he's saying is there's no dual citizenship There's a world that operates in one way and there's God's promised future world that is coming that we're called to bear witness to and embody together as the body of Christ. And there's no dual citizenship. We must die to one in order to rise into the other with Christ. And then Jesus says something really odd, or it sounds odd, as he says that some among him are going to see this kingdom come in power even before they die. And that sounds weirder than it is, because actually, if you just keep reading this chapter, you get to the story of the transfiguration, where you realize, oh, three of these guys with Jesus are actually going to be witnesses to something really profound and unique. This preview of God's future, and this like transformation of Jesus, this glimpse of the glory of the Son of Man that almost no one gets to see, right? We don't get to see that. The other nine of the disciples didn't get to see that. But these three do. But for the other nine, and for the rest of us, what we see as we enter into this dying and rising with Christ, as we enter into this following Jesus and taking up our cross and embarking on a life of self-sacrifice and joining Jesus in union and communion with him, of loving God and loving neighbor, what we see looks a whole lot more like cross than like glory, isn't it? As we take up a life of self-denial in the world. What we see 
looks like the cross. And so the question then is, what do we need? What do we need in order to know that the way of, cro- of the cross is actually the path of glory and life that God holds out for his beloved? What do we need to see and hear and experience in order to keep moving forward in faith so that we would be able to turn away from this survival of the fittest mentality that is like hardwired into the core of our very being? And that we would turn away from vain pursuits of personal glory and wealth and status and power and turn instead toward our Savior who turns toward us and turns us toward our neighbor. We need this right here. We need this gathered time of worship where we catch a glimpse of the future God promises, where we catch a glimpse of what it is that God is gathering us into, where we get a preview of the joy set before us in his kingdom where we dine with him at his table. And we need to tell and we need to hear the stories, don't we? of how God is meeting us and attending to our needs and through us to the needs of our neighbors. We need all the stuff Mindy was just talking about in her announcement where we share with one another in fellowship with one another who are in fellowship with our Savior, all of us walking together with him in the way of the cross, which we trust is the way, actually, of glory and life. But maybe most profoundly, most basically what we need is we need to hear the voice of God spoken through the mouths of one another saying, this is who you are, saint, beloved. This is who you are. You belong to God, and he will never let you go. You're a citizen of his kingdom that cannot be shaken. You are embraced by his outstretched arms and you are not strong enough to pry yourself free and no one else is strong enough to rip you away. You are his and he is yours. This is love. Not that we loved him or that we've done anything to achieve an identity for ourselves of any kind, but that he first loved us and gave himself for our sake. You know, this call to justice-seeking discipleship, it's not a call to save the world. That's Jesus' job. Our call to justice-seeking discipleship is a call to love your neighbor. It's a call to love your neighbor. And it's a call to love the God who has loved you first in Christ. And what we need to know more than anything else is who we are. Because what God calls you to do in the particulars of your life is a function of whom God has made you to be in Christ. And he's made you to be a saint. And he's called you to love your neighbor. And the one who calls you is faithful. May God give us grace to follow him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love, your embrace, We thank you for your courage to walk in the way of the cross, that for the joy set before you, you endured it even as you despised its shame, and that as you have been raised and been given the name above every name, that you call us to walk with you through this world as your beloved, as your instruments, as your hands and feet, and your body in the earth. 
God, would you bless us and keep us as we go, and would you encourage us in the depths of our being that we would know that we are loved by you and held by you and sent by you into your world to be agents of your justice and peace. We pray through the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.